Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, friend. Welcome to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. Today, we're discussing the evaluation and treatment of lower back pain with Dr. Stuart McGill. Dr. McGill is a professor emeritus from the University of Waterloo, where he has over 30 years of experience. His laboratory and experimental research clinic investigated issues related to the causal mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate people living with pain, and how to enhance both injury resilience and performance. His advice is often sought by governments, corporations, legal experts, medical groups, and elite athletes and teams from around the world. His work produced over 240 peer-reviewed scientific journal papers, several textbooks, and many international awards. On today's episode, we'll discuss some of the more common truths and myths about back pain, how to effectively assess low back pain, lessons you can apply to treating lower back pain in the average person, as well as with high-performing athletes, and whether or not surgery is indicated for people with lower back pain. Okay, let's get ready and let's meet Professor Stu McGill. Hi, Dr. McGill. Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here this week. Good morning, Joe, from uh, sunny and cold Gravenhurst, Ontario, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Good morning from sunny and chilly New York City. We have similar climate, probably a little bit more snow up there than we have here, though. Well, I woke up to minus 33 uh, yeah. yesterday. <laughs> I have a son who lives in Manhattan, though. He lives there because he thinks it's tropical. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you on. I've been looking forward to chatting with you about final biomechanics and low back pain. You've got probably decades, I mean, you have decades of evidence-based work in this area. Tell us first how you started to become interested in the biomechanics of the spine? Joe, it's a purely by chance story. I get asked to uh, give talks on oh, career advice to student groups. And I'm saying, please don't pick me. I'm the world's worst example. I uh, wasn't supposed to even go to university, but I went to play sports, believe it or not, and then became interested in biomechanics only because I was lost in the library one day and I saw a book that someone had left out on biomechanics. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. It's a little physics, a little mechanics, a little anatomy. So I found out where the biomechanics programs were. And by that time, I went to university for football. By that time, I was interested in cycling. I found out one of the best biomechanics schools was in Ottawa, and they had the French Gatineau for cycling. So bingo, I went and did that. I was playing hockey with the professor's team at Ottawa. And we played a university called University of Waterloo. I would, had applied for my PhD in systems design engineering. But I met one of the professors, was obviously a professor at Waterloo, and he said, you know, we're just starting a, a spine biomechanics lab. Why don't you drop by for a visit? So it was as dumb luck and happenstance as that. But I, I always enjoyed certainly mechanics and engineering and obviously had a performance, injury resilience interest in all of this just with my own. But uh, I don't know if that's similar to your story, how you became a therapist or not, but did you want to be a therapist when you were 15? That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that question on the podcast. When I took my SATs as a junior in, in high school, I actually put, you had to choose at that point on your SAT, there was a number that coded with certain careers. 
And I actually put physical therapists on that. I was a junior in high school at that point. And now my first two years of college, I was actually a business major. Not too many people know that. But I studied business for about two and a half years. And then I, after my second business law class, I was like, I need to get the heck out of this class and course and get back on track with healthcare. So that's a little bit of my academic story. Yeah. So you knew that you did have this basic interest in helping and healing and that kind of thing quite early. Yeah. Well, like yourself, I was an athlete. I was a competitive gymnast. So I was always interested in the health of the body and in some ways the biomechanics of the body. So PT was a nice fit for that. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. So tell us how, you know, tell us how your research career has developed. I'd imagine a couple decades ago, the spy and biomechanics lab looked really different than it does today. It certainly. When I started my own lab as a newly minted assistant professor, I really only had one question, and it was, how does the spine work? And it was as simple as that. So we would uh, watch people move, we'd measure their muscle activation patterns, their different postures, and we created at the time, and, and maybe even still today, some of the most sophisticated and detailed three-dimensional computerized models. So we would create a virtual spine of the individual, watch them move, activate their muscles according to the myoelectric signals that we recorded, etc. And we learned all kinds of insights, things like everybody is different. People change when they get fatigued. They load different tissues. When they're learning new skills, they learn very differently. Basic uh, athleticisms. Some of these people are touched by the hand of God and other people are related to snails. <laughs> so this was all very incredible uh, to us to get that level of insight. And then I started a spine tissue lab where we took cadaveric spines and loaded them and created the injuries. And then I developed a radiology suite. So we got a one-to-one -one match between what were some of the non-optimal patterns that real people displayed. We would then apply the those to cadaveric spines, and we'd watch the injuries and tissue damage progress and form cascades. And then we'd go back to the person, and lo and behold, look at the images, and there we could see, say, we overloaded in compression first. And this is long before any disc damage occurs. The bone underneath the end plates, the Sharpies fibers, would start to break a little bit, and that would allow eventually delamination and disc herniations to proceed. So, you know, as a gymnast, if you hit the, the wrong landing, you could do a little bit of trabecular micro damage. You wouldn't even know, but that just left a slight weakness for a cumulative cascade to start off if, you know, proper adaptations didn't occur. And then the third bit of that whole development started about 20 years ago. I was a professor for 30, but uh, about 20 years ago, we started the research clinic and I wasn't a formally trained clinician. So I wasn't biased to a certain school of medicine. I went from scratch. And this will be particularly interesting to your listenership. I knew how important it was just to listen to a person, have them tell their story. And while they were doing that, we could do pattern recognition, observe their learning style, get them to do a few clandestine movements and whatnot. And then I knew what we really needed to assess to reach some degree of precision in whatever was the pain mechanism. I started out that clinic with two-hour appointments. 
My medical colleagues said, are you nuts? No one does two-hour assessments. Well, Joe, within a year, we turned that to three hours. So, you know, 18 years ago, we realized basically our medical colleagues are paid to perform procedures. So nowhere in there are they paid to perform a really thorough, intensive investigation of why they have pain. And this is, you know, a major impediment. So that was, you know, I get nailed as this strict biomechanist who only deals in the physical. And yet when clinicians come and work with us and and go through an assessment with a real patient, for the first time, they'll say, oh my goodness, social media has you wrong. That was the most biopsychosocial rubric that we've ever seen. We started that way 20 years ago. And of course, my real expertise is in the mechanical processes. There's no question. But we certainly appreciate. You know, I remember writing an article 20 years ago on the, I forget the word I used, but to tell a person they have a degenerative disc disease. What a horrible thing to tell a person when it's a lie. There's no disease there. And the cognitive dissonance that patients would come in, oh, do you mean, you know, my spine isn't going to continue to degenerate? And I said, well, no, I've got white hair and (laughs) that's not a degenerative disease anyway. So it's been uh, a bit of fun, but maybe that gives a little bit of an overview of the process without getting question specific. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm, I mean, I've seen a number of professionals, both those with high degrees, shall we say, and those who've never gone to college, but just through working with people one-on-one over and over through the years, develop a certain kind of touch and charisma on how to help people with pain. So I've seen that in Pilates instructors and yoga therapists, yoga instructors who've never gone to university. And then I've seen it in professionals like yourself who have closely related but non-clinical degrees, but are also working with people to try to help them cope with what's happening in their life, cope with pain. So you mentioned you spend two to three hours with someone when you're first evaluating them. Or sometimes more. Yeah, which is so interesting because the average person who has back pain probably winds up first at either a primary care physician or potentially an orthopedic surgeon. And I would say they spend maybe 10 minutes. with. These are the tales of woe that I hear every week. (laughs) So what is that? What is your, through your lens, what does that say about how we're training health professionals to evaluate low back pain? Well, I know there's all kinds of discussions at levels of government, policymakers, et cetera, on what they're going to do about this world. And some even use the word catastrophe in treating back pain. And I, my answer to that question and to you is until the medical system creates the capacity to assess a person and really get at what the mechanism of their pain is. We really don't have a hope because there's no such thing as nonspecific back pain in my world. It's all highly specific. So to give any nonspecific treatment to a nonspecific malady will always result in nothing works or everything works, etc. So to create subcategorization, I mean, do we have such a thing as nonspecific head pain or nonspecific leg pain? People wouldn't put up with that. So I don't know why we put up with this nonspecificity in, in back pain. And that can be specified in so many different 
types of categories. And in my world, we get right down to a category of one. That person is a standalone in terms of their full psychosocial, physical pain provocation rubric. Their learning style matters, as you know. Their family life matters, as you know. Their job matters. Their mattress matters. How they stand matters. Building capacity for an athlete to train again. Everything matters. So I don't know. Is that a little bit of a, a starting point to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good starting point. I mean, it's a, I would say it's a very true assessment of what's happening in the world of pain care, with specifically with low back pain. We don't really have a good way to evaluate and treat it yet. We don't really have a good rubric or a good system. No one's been able to really systematize that yet in a way that's been beneficial and a way that's improved outcomes over other different types of treatment. So it's a good way to approach it. You mentioned mechanical processes and you mentioned the mechanisms. From a clinician's perspective, when you're evaluating someone, what are the mechanisms that you're looking for with regard to lower back pain? Can I just go back to your statement that no one's coming up with an approach? I'd like to discuss that with you. Sure. Because I've followed up with every patient I've seen through my entire career, 100%. I know exactly my clinical score. I know the subcategory that each patient was put into. I know whether or not they complied with our recommendations. I know whether or not uh, and how they would grade their success or failure. So I don't know if another clinical group has done that. I think within that three-hour time, when we start with uh, a free-form interview, we just tell them, you know, what is it that you're seeking? And what are your goals? Now tell me your story. And then doing pattern recognition, we would then take them down here to the clinic and we would recreate the things that they listed that made their back pain worse or brought it on. And then we would create a antidote to that. So if they said, um, when I sit down and I flex, I get back pain. When I flex my neck, my back pain goes away. Ah, that's the opposite of what every clinician has been taught in the slump test. But then if we do this and they say, oh yeah, my left toe just went on fire. All right. Right away, there's a classic underhooked nerve root. If it's going to the big toe, we're looking at L5, unless there's mechanical crosstalk to L4. So there would be the start of a hypothesis that we can become very precise on. Then we might do a laying uh, decompression on their back and then repeat the test. And they say, oh, you know what? My, my toe didn't light up that time. Aha, we strengthen the hypothesis. Then we might try some neurodynamics and migrate the cord away from the underhook and repeat again. Then we would go back to the original offense. And then I say, I will bet I will find an open fissured disc bulge posterior lateral on the right at L5. Let's look at your MRIs now. Bingo. There it is. So I'm questioning this notion that we can't reach a precise diagnosis with an awful lot of people. I would say the vast, vast majority it is possible. The issue being the clinician has to be savvy in, uh, first of all, interpreting the, the patterns that the, the patient provide. They have the clinical skills to know how to replicate them in, in specific provocative tests. They need knowledge of anatomy, pathomechanics, neuroanatomy. Uh, they have to interpret how that person is describing their pain. Uh, 
they certainly have to understand what they are seeing on the radiology scans. And I will also tell you that most radiologists miss what's right in front of them. And they never get to see the patient, so they don't know the feature that they're seeing on the scan is a wound that is fresh and causing pain, or it's an old scar caused 30 years ago and is now burned out. There's no pain from it. So without seeing the patient, I don't know how a radiologist could ever make any of those links. But I'm starting to put all of these things together. And the final piece of the puzzle is coaching skill. If the clinician can then describe with some precision and show the patient the mechanism of their pain uh, in the full biopsychosocial rubric and then give them alternate strategies to avoid the pain immediately that patient says, I'm in control. I uh, thank you, first of all, for explaining all this to me uh, and not treating me like a five-year-old. And uh, I get it now. And uh, I, I, now that process I just described was that a, a psychological, a social, a mechanical? It was all of the above. Um, but th that's what might occur in those three hours. And I will argue that we can get to a fairly precise understanding. And that precision gives us a fairly complete directive of how to advise that patient. So my clinician mind is starting to bleep a little bit here. So three hours can be a long time for a patient, long time for someone with pain to right. um, endure during an evaluation. What do you do with people who are fatigued or maybe have some cognitive deficits that's difficult for them to maintain the three hours? How does that fit into the evaluation process? I'll take you on a tour of BackFit Pro here if you like, but to my left is a box of Kleenex <laughs> and tears will flow. And there's a time to, okay, we're going to take an interval now. And that's all in this. If the person has just, we're two hours north of the Toronto airport. If they've flown from Europe, very rarely do we see a person who's from Ontario. They almost all fly in. And then they have to drive a rental car up here uh, or a limo or whatever it is. Um, they get out of the car. They're not ready for us to assess them. I'll have to say, I need some restored balance to your body. Would you go walk around the block, please? And then we will start getting a true assessment of, of what your mechanism is. And uh, there, uh, once I've honed in on my uh, impression, I tell them, we're taking a break. Go to the toilet or whatever it is you're going to do. Now, here is a position of respite. Here is a safe position for you to go. And that's primary in, in every person who leaves here. They have to know where they can go to uh, wind down the pain a little bit. It might be a prone lay, for example, for a person who's flexion intolerant. But if they have a uh, femoral root uh, tension, we may have to bolster, you know, under the pelvis, for example. So we really work at showing them with precision where that safe place is. And then I go away and I go over all of the clinical notes that I've made from their history taking and them telling their story, all of our provocative testing. And uh, that gives maybe a natural 10 minute break right there. 
So uh, I, I think there's several built-in breaks uh, throughout that three hours. And I did say, sometimes I've had those go five hours, but I always invite the person to bring their clinicians with them. So they're, if they're an athlete, they bring the team doc or the team physio or whoever it is. Um, some of the clients are very wealthy. They bring in entire medical teams. They might be royalty from an, another country. They all fly in. I'm not flying to them. And it could be much longer even with another follow-up the next morning. But we're, we're conscious of that for sure. Um, do you want to hear a fun story? Please do. Share with us. Think, think of uh, the athletes that you worked with. And again, they form patterns. And again, there's, there's very little separation between the psychological and the physical. Think of every explosive athlete you've worked with they have almost attention deficit disorder. In other words, their mind is binging and racing, but that's the explosive neurology and their learning style. It's a pattern. So you've got maybe 40 seconds to coach them and make your point. And then you have to figure out a strategy. All right, we're going to float, we're going to practice, and then we're going to give them the next. Versus someone who is more of an endurance, aerobic kind of athleticism. That's their base natural athleticism. You can coach them for a long time. Very, very different. So isn't that interesting? And, and you know, uh, figuring out the cues that uh, people learn from a wrestler, you know, a gymnast, perhaps, I would be using hand cues, touch, force, and that kind of thing. A sprinter, there it is, sound. A linebacker, it's a visual read. They're watching the play form, etc. So anyway, there, there's a, I don't know if you have <laughs> your experience on how you handle people and athletes and how that three hours is structured based on, on their psychology, which is their athleticism. They're all one and the same when you form the path. Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing up the, the concept of time with regard to the evaluation because there are many different types of practice settings for most of the people who listen to this podcast are physical therapists, but there are other types of professionals that listen to this also. And it can vary between 30 minutes to 60. I would say much beyond 60 is probably a, rare, a rarity in healthcare currently at least in the United States. But I have thought about this more and more, and I think some patients, depending on who the patient is in the population, that 90 or 120 minutes may be necessary. But like you said, you're working in rest breaks in there, and of course, as you're coaching and counseling, that involves some talking and is helpful with the therapeutic bond. In those moments when you're coaching and you're counseling, and you're talking to the client or the patient, I'm sure there are things that they have questions. What kind of questions do they have? And when you hear them, you can identify them as back myths that are persistent in our culture and our society that you try to address. Yeah, it's a fabulous question. Again, the person who has more of a, an anxious personality profile, you can usually nail them right off the bat because you'll do a test or two and they say, so what is it? What are you finding? And I'm saying I'm still learning and I'm not going to give you any kind of impressions until I'm quite sure. And then when I deliver my opinion, I give it with a percentage of certainty. So I had a patient yesterday and I said, I'm 99.5% sure that this is what's going on. They were told they had a spondylolisthesis and that I tested, I tested the integrity of the PARs. I really loaded them up. There was really no pain on that. I looked at the MRIs. There was a mild bone edema in the PARs. What they had was a low-grade spina bifida. 
And, you know, it is what it is. But that wasn't the driver of their pain. As it turned out, it was two segments above. And I just touched uh, L3 in, in a shear test. And sure enough, it corresponded with the, the femoral root signs that they were describing around their thighs and down like that. So if they ask me a question too soon on what's going on, I, I just have to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll converge and I'll, I'll give you that. If it is... Some people have personalities that they are naturally precise, and I'll say, does that hurt more or less than the baseline pain I just created? And they'll give me a litany of, of 10 sentences, and I'll just say, better or worse. There's only two answers. So you know how it goes. And then the next person, say I might get some neural resonance. They've had some damage to uh, T9. And we just published a paper on six case studies now where patients have had damage to either T9 or T10. And then when we load T9 and T10, their abdominal wall goes into an 8 to 10 hertz resonance. It's <laughs> like that. And I was describing that at one of my uh, assessment courses. And one of the docs in the audience said, I just saw a patient like that. They had a T9 disc herniation, T9-10. Anyway, I ended up co-writing the, the paper with that person. So if that was the source of the question, why, why do I shake when I adopt a particular load or a posture or activity or whatever it happens to be? So anyway, I, I don't know if that helps. But did you want to talk about some interesting mechanisms? Yes, I'd love to. Please dive into the mechanisms. Right. Well, here is one that, by the way, all of these models that I'm showing you have been created by a company which I have no business relationship at all. I'm telling you because they are the best biofidelic representations of what's going on. They're fabulous. And most of them have been based on some of the science that we've investigated over the years. So obviously a pelvis with three lumbar vertebra. Consider L5S1 as a normal disc. L3-4 is a normal disc, but L4-5 has lost its turgor. It could have been a little bit of end plate damage or a fresh smarls node or a little delamination and a disc bulge. But now I'm just going to stress it from the top. So I'm going to twist the spine. Do you see how most of the motion is occurring at the disc that lost its stiffness or turgor? Now, that person will probably report varying symptoms of pain. At this point in time, it might be pain down the right side. At another point in time, it's pain down the left side. So an unstable pain pattern is highly correlated to an unstable joint. So there is a true unstable joint for people who want to argue that spine stability is not important. So there's, there's many interventions that person could learn, say a pec major latissimus dorsi brace in certain activities to pull down to arrest that micro movement and deal with their pain. Someone else might tune the abdominal activation to brace out that pain. We see people who've over and, you know, I know who I'm talking to here, Joe, and, and I know you're well aware of all of these things, but all of these mechanisms have a tipping point. So loading, as we all know, is absolutely necessary for health. The problems come 
when a person crosses that biological tipping point and they create something like this that then becomes a, a pain generator. Or they're the total opposite. They don't stress their body enough and they never create uh, adaptations that are, when I use the word anabolic, I don't mean steroids. I, I mean the anabolic process of adapting the body. This is a, a, a very wonderful model for some central stenosis patients. So I'll bring this model out and I'll have them pull the brass rod through the central canal and they feel that there's no resistance. And in fact, if I let it go, the brass rod falls out. Now I'm going to add ever so slight extension and they can't pull the brass rod out. So it teaches them why a very slight pelvic tilt allows them to walk for 10 minutes, whereas, but no one showed them that. But that description and visual is so powerful in showing them why I might have them post on the wall and teach them how to find that magical spot that allows them to walk, for example. Here is a typical example, and I mentioned the word underhooked nerve root, and a lot of people won't know what that is. So can you see at the back of that disc a little red mark that is some collagen delamination or a fissure through the annulus at the end of my finger? Can you see that? Yep, I can see that. Okay, so now I'm going to flex and squeeze. So you need the combination of both. I'm going to squeeze the disc and flex it forward. And you see hydraulic effort creating a little bit of a bulge uh, posteriorly through the open fissure. Now I'm going to change and direct the thrust line directly down through the spine vertically, but I'm not going to allow the flexion to occur. And you can see the whole disc deforms, but the hydraulic effort is now balanced and it doesn't focus into uh, the fissure and creating a bulge. Well, you're very aware of neurodynamics. So that test I was describing is a person is sitting and they flex their neck and look down. That migrates the whole spinal cord about a centimeter, 10 or 12 millimeters uh, cranially. And if they were to look up, they get the opposite migration. So a underhooked disc bulge looks like this. There's the nerve root. There's the physical offense when they look down with an underhook. Do you see how that pulls the nerve root off the underhook? Now I'm going to have the person look up and extend the neck, and that migrates the nerve root into the offense. But most people are overhooked. So that's why the slump test reveals and uh, exacerbates the uh, dermatome or the myotome for that uh, particular uh, root. But I've got, just so people can see, I've got many of these models that I pull out for the, for the patient education part about um, the specific physical elements. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that you know, their job doesn't play a role. Their avoidance of exercise doesn't play a role. The neighborhood that they live in that they're fearful to go out and walk in at night doesn't play a role in stopping them from going for the therapeutic walk that I've uh, given them. You know, we, we, we really try and get into this and, and understand it. I'm the last guy that they see. They've, had, they've been conditioned to fail. They've already seen 10 or 12 clinicians before. And I need to know the impediments of why they failed all of those. But in, in every case, except for maybe two in my career, there is a physical 
element. In almost every case, there is a psychosocial component to it. You know, <laughs> we all get this. The trick of it all is to, you know, that quote from Vince Lombardi came into mind when you asked me the question at the top of the podcast. And it was something to the effect that some clinicians are developing awareness and they just get it. And I think of Vince Lombardi when, he's, when he asked, uh, what makes you such a good football coach? H how did you learn about football? Because I don't think he was a player. And Lombardi's answer was, I don't know football, but I know men. And I thought that is clinic. If you need to be taught how to read a person, I think you better find another job. You're in the wrong business. I don't care about your physical skills. You know, we had a uh, patient here who won the Poker Stars competition in Vegas. And he's got to sit there for many hours. And his back pain was preventing him. And he had to read people. So I got him, how do you, how do you read cards? And, you know, we, it was a fabulous lesson on reading people. We had one of the chiefs of Homeland Security here for the U.S., as a patient. And after the interview, he said to me, I'm a professional interrogator. The tricks you used was, was textbook. How did you learn all of this stuff? And I said, but that's what we study. I study criminals. How do they know who the mark is? How do they know who's psychologically weak or physically weak? They're going to either rob their bank account or snatch their purse. Criminals didn't go to university to know how to read people and patients. So anyway, you must be smiling because I know at your institute, you teach this. So <laughs> what's your thought on what I just said? I have a couple questions. And these are questions more, I think, that listeners might be interested in, in hearing you talk about and discuss. So you've talked about mechanisms of back pain. Obviously, you've talked about working with patients and evaluating, treating people with pain. And you've touched on some really important parts of the biopsychosocial model of pain. So things like if you don't have an environment where you can walk outside and get some healthy exercise, there's a social determinant of health there that all of us have to be aware of because that has implications on society and policy specifically. And of course, later on, how well our patients can take our recommendations and self-treat and cope with what's happening. With regard to pain education and pain science, which I believe your work fits into, there is some evidence and some talk about not using models to describe mechanisms and the biomechanics of pain in the body. I'm just wondering what your response is to that, that field of work and to people who have objections to that. It's a fabulous question. So I was getting down to this idea of, this, of the subject end of one, and you read the person. If they are an educated person and they want to know the mechanism of pain, the models are very powerful in showing them the mechanism and then what they must do to create the adaptation so that mechanism is dealt with. I have a friend, his name is Mark Greenberg. He's a pediatric cancer specialist. He's done a, a fabulous TED talk. Now, in childhood cancer, most of his patients die. Now, you have to speak to that child and you have to speak to their parents, tell them what's going on, to have a genuine conversation, how do you do that? If you can get through it without bawling your eyes out, you're better than I am. But, you know, these are the things that we think about. And there are people who so appreciate those physical models and they say, you know, you're the first guy who hasn't treated us like a five-year-old. I understand. I get it now. I get why you're coaching me this way. So again, if they have that open fissure disc bulge, we will work to allow it to gristle. Here's what you need to gristle. Now you see it. Now here's where we're going to operationalize it in your movements. Sit with a lumbar pillow. 
do all of these things, wind it down. And I mean, I've, I've proven this so many times because as you know, I've had hundreds, hundreds of athletes go back and compete in the Olympics, major leagues. We're certainly as hell not creating fragile people. We're creating absolute warriors. So to show them those adaptations that they must create, uh, they get it. When I show them this model, they understand, ah, the last time I had sex, I blew my back up. We've been celibate for three months. Now, if you believe who, that is a, a determinant of health. There's nothing more psychosocial than that. And now when I show them, yes, that's creating micro movements. We did the first study on sexual technique for matching back pain triggers. We created an atlas and we said, if you're motion intolerant, here are some ideas. If you're extension intolerance, here are some ideas. Here are things to avoid and here are things to do. We can then show them on that atlas. Now, again, there's nothing more cognitive behavioral than that. And haven't you had couples come to you and say, we are now celibate because of the back pain we've experienced, guide us. So I don't know how you coach that, but there's no guidelines that exist, Joe. So when we put together the models and the atlases and show them, they are so grateful. We've even had couples who are here, can we get on this bed and show you? Will you show us, please? And it sounds, some people will, will think this is rather funny. It's deadly serious. It changes people's lives. So if people say those models don't help them, that's fine. It maybe it doesn't work for them because as a clinician, they're a subject end of one. We all have different skills that we bring to the table. But I can assure you for the people who are at the end of the line that I see, they are absolutely essential. So the flip side of that is, do you think we've gone too far with the psychosocial part and the cognitive behavioral part of treating people with low back pain? And has that maybe potentially gone awry for, for some people? There's absolutely no question for some clinicians. I'm going to tell you a story. I had a patient who came to see me. He said, I've seen you know, four or five physical therapists. I've been to a surgeon. The surgeon wanted to amputate my foot. And I said, well, what happens? He says, well, sometimes my back crunches and, and clicks. And he says, it feels like someone's opening up my hamstrings with a shard of glass. And then my foot goes on fire. And he says, I can't even stand the weight of a summer bed sheet on my toes. So they're going to amputate my foot. And I said, really? And then he said, and then I went to the pain clinic and they loaded me up on Demerol, and now I'm, I'm hooked on it. And then the psychologists have told me I'm magnifying my pain and that perhaps I really want to be a woman. And I'm just listening to this, and I'm on the edge of tears. And then he says to me, he says, Doc, he says, if the pain really is something that I'm magnifying, that means I'm crazy. I don't deserve to live if I'm crazy. I hear you're different, but if you can't help me, I'm putting an end to it next week you've got one week. Now there's my clinical world. Welcome to it. So I said, all right, what causes this pain? Because clearly you don't have it now. And he said, well, he says, I, I have to do a certain movement. And this raging blade that opens up my leg hits me. And I said, could you show me this movement? He says, what, you want me to create the pain? And I said, yes, it's the only chance I have to understand it. I said, you've been to a dozen different clinicians here. Has no one ever asked you to show them your pain? And he says, no. He said, you're the first guy who's ever touched me. And I thought, what an indictment of clinical practice. 
So that's the full mechanists, the full pain scientists. Everyone's had their shot. The drugs, everything else. And no one has touched them. And not one has given them an assessment. So I said, okay. And now I put my instrumentation on. So full 3D reconstruction. He winds himself around. And he comes around top dead center. And, ah, creates this raging trap down his leg. So, and I heard a clunk, as if the spine cavitated when this happened. And I laid him on the plinth and gave him a little decompression and, and got him tuned down a little bit. But obviously, there was nothing more I could do. I said, now, you've got to trust me on this. I got a really good start on this. Don't do anything stupid. Trust me. Will you promise to give me a few days? He said, yes, I promise. So I phoned him up that night. How are you doing? Okay. I called him the next day and I said, will you come in tomorrow now? So this is day three and he'd calm down. He came in day three. What I had measured was he had this micro movement as I'm describing here. What happened when he wound himself around muscle that was required for the movements and postures created sufficient stiffness and control. But as he came through top dead center, he shut his muscles right down. And I saw the precise instant he hit top dead center, we saw the instability occur, and we saw all the muscles drop to about 3 or 4% activation. It was at a precise time the joint clunked, just like we see traps and whiplash patients on fluoroscopy. It was exactly that. And so I said, come on in. I instrumented him again. And I said, this time, push my fingers out laterally. No, that's too much. Just there push my fingers out. Keep talking to me. Let's go around the circle one more time. Came around the circle, started to come up through top dead center, and you could see the fear in his eyes. Ah, 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 ah. The trap was gone. We had stiffened it out. I said, do it again. And the same thing. Now, we just empowered him 100% confidence that he engineered out that pain trigger. So you're creating some stability either from, from what I can see on, on the yes, video here, absolutely. either through a valsalva or through contraction of the abdominals in some way. Right, exactly. And, and that's creating stability in the spine. So he's not getting the instability as he moves through that one direction. Correct. Bingo. But now it has to be tuned. But anyway, talk about coaching. This guy was, uh, he laid drain tiles in uh, farmer's fields as, as a living. He owned the company, but he was on the crew doing it. So a very, very physical job. So right away now, my number one job was I had to stop lead poisoning. So that cognitive dissonance that had driven him to suicide was instantly gone through him psychologically taking that control and realizing that he had full control over this. And I said, from now on, pain is only your tutor. It means you failed to do what I've just shown you to do. That was about eight years ago. He brought his daughter to me last summer because she's a heavy field athlete and on scholarship in the U.S. Now she's got a disc bulge. So, But I said to him, how's your back these days? He says, 100%. I said, did you ever have more of those episodes? He said, I never, ever had another episode opening up my hamstrings again. I brought him back after four months to assess him again and reevaluate. And he would got the motor patterns. He'd honed them and absolutely zero trap that he was creating at that instant of, uh, you call it instability, I call it insufficient stiffness in, in true mechanical terms. So to the people who say, 
<laughs> does that answer the question a little bit, Joe? And it does. And- There's a couple of things from from your story there that I appreciate. One, just asking someone, show me your pain. So often when people are going to a physician or any type of practitioner, practitioners are looking for pain where patients want to be heard. And by asking the patient, can you show me your pain? Can you physically show me what causes your pain is a really nice way of validating someone and letting them know that you're interested and you're helping them with their pain. The other thing about your story is there's a movement to bringing back more multidisciplinary pain treatment centers, which I'm supportive of. There are people out there with multiple comorbidities that oftentimes need the services of many different types of health professionals. And we need that. We need more of that. We don't have that in the United States of America. Although in your case, what you're demonstrating is that a well-trained clinician, a well-trained professional who's, who has an understanding of both the biomechanical and the psychosocial aspects can eff- effectively, safely, and efficiently treat people. And what's important about that is that it actually saves the system money. So this person potentially could have wound up in a multidisciplinary setting and you know, turned their wheels there for weeks or months, potentially wasted a whole bunch of our healthcare dollars and still not found a positive outcome. There's one part of that story that does kind of perk my ears up a little bit. I think everyone should pay attention to that if the rates of suicide are higher in people with chronic pain. So if someone says they, if they don't find a, you know, a solution, they're going to put a gun to their head, there may be a trigger there for a mental health consultation. So I just want to you know, bring that in for people who are listening. But I, I think the moral of your story is that there are ways to effectively treat people's pain without bringing in 10 different types of professionals into the mix. Well, I have two comments for that, Joe. The first is in giving him, you know, did I treat him? I like to think I educated him to heal himself. I think that's what we did. And yes, he'd already been to a multidisciplinary pain clinic. It's just they didn't have our expertise there. So I think the multidisciplinary clinic maybe doesn't have the right makeup of expertise always. Now, having said that, I'm going to play the other side of the coin as well. I have a broad network of professional colleagues that I refer to and they refer back to me. So if an athlete comes in with a tear, we can document it. You can see the contraction dynamics in ultrasound as the muscle knits together, there's the tear. And that's now out of my wheelhouse. If they can do their magic with PRP and all the rest of it, there you go. I do have people when someone comes in and they're crushed by their weight or they can't move and get enough capacity to do the exercise programs, which are absolutely essential for desensitizing their pain, I have a person to to help with that. So like you, I'm sure you you have your Rolodex. I'm old fashioned. I, I, what do you call the iPhone thing? I still have a Rolodex. <laughs> I have my Rolodex of folks uh, really around the world that I refer back and forth. So I do stay within my wheelhouse but that is obviously biased biomechanical, but very much it's, it's about reading the, the, the person uh, as well. But all of these other things, for sure, I'm working back and forth with my colleagues. And, you know, it's, here's another comment for the younger folks that, that might be listening to this. They're struggling to get their careers going and uh, they're trying to build their clientele and all the rest of it. That referral network pays you back in spades. So as you work with your colleagues, they feed it all back to you. And I would suggest you get back more than you refer out on that. 
Excellent. Great point. As we start to wrap up this episode, can you tell us about your company, BackFit Pro, and what your aim is there? Well, I'm the world's worst businessman. BackFit Pro was essentially a forum to sell my, my books and inform people of the educational courses that we put on. Well, I'm retiring now, retired from the university a few years ago, and I've got my teaching colleagues that do most of the teaching, although we, I do put on a master assessment course in my hometown here for two days, a few times a year. But it does give people with back pain and clinicians some thoughts on some of the scientific foundation. The, the, the first book I wrote, Low Back Disorders, was really, I wrote that for clinicians. And then the next one, Ultimate Back Fitness, I wrote that for coaches and athletes. And then The Gift of Injury was, was the story of a heavy athlete, world record holder in two different weight divisions in, in powerlifting. When I say he really had a catastrophic injury, I don't think that is, I don't know if you've seen that book, but the MRIs of Brian Carroll, when he came to me, he'd split his sacrum front to back. He'd really crushed L5, and that's not an exaggeration of the word. The discs were heavily damaged. And then we, we did bone callusing for a year and rebuilt him and created the tissue adaptations for him to come back and squat over 1,100 pounds once again. So it's a bit of a testament to the power of mechanostimulation. Then a company from New York came to me and said, would you write a book for the lay public? We, we've read some of your scientific ones. And I said, no, I, I don't know how to. Anyway, the hardest book I ever wrote was Back Mechanic, which I wrote for the lay public. And the company book agent said, it has to have a title, Fix Back Pain and Five Easy Steps or something like that. And I said, I can't do that. That's a lie. I said, you know, <laughs> as this podcast has, has demonstrated, it's complicated, but not impossible. So anyway, I ended up self-publishing the thing and it's 17 chapters. And I start out by describing some of the mechanisms and pathways and cascades, etc., that that cause people to uh, have disabling back pain. I'm not talking a little ache and pain here. I'm talking about disabling back pain that is inhibiting their work and their life. But as we discussed earlier, it's very difficult to find a competent assessment provided. So this chapter six, I believe it is, guides the person through a self-assessment. And we just have them sit in different postures and lay in different postures, hold loads in different positions. And it, it gets them to realize certain things trigger their pain and certain things don't. And then from there, we show them how to movement hacks, we'll call them, or spine hygiene. If this causes your pain, think about brushing your teeth this way or tying your shoes this particular way. And then we show them how to build strategic mobility and stability. So treat your ball and socket joints like ball and socket joints. Create power, have fun. That's your shoulders and hips. The spine isn't a set of ball and socket joints. It's an adaptable fabric. The collagen fibers are just like fibers on your shirt. Repeated stress strain reversals are okay. And if you want to be a gymnast, great. You can train spine mobility. However, if you think you're going to tolerate heavy loads, you are mistaken unless you've been touched by the hand of God. If you want to be a power lifter, forget about mobility and being a gymnast. Life there's no free lunch. You can only have it one way in terms of tissue adaptation. So we take them through that and then we show them there's no question you have to walk. Short interval walkings are, as we all know now, good for a lot of things in your body. But to have optimal spine health, quadratus lumborum, latissimus, the obliques, etc., it's really non-negotiable. And then we get into the special conditions 
you know, we mentioned stenosis and some of those other things earlier. So that's the book. Now you don't have to buy it. I've just told you about it. Oh, there's a chapter on there on if you've tried all the different clinical approaches, you've tried chiro and physical therapy and whatever else, cognitive behavioral therapy, and you've been to the, the surgeon, etc. And now you still have pain and someone has told you the last resort is surgery. So the chapter to help a person navigate through that, there's no question, surgery is needed and helpful sometimes, but much more rarely than most people think. And if they would try what we call virtual surgery, which is pretend you've had surgery now. Tomorrow, you're not going to the fitness center and riding the elliptical for 20 minutes. It's not going to happen. You're going to rest and you're going to get up and have short little interval walks and we will slowly grab, but it guarantees a slow adaptation, which you've never done before. You've been addicted to exercise or whatever the reason is. I mean, surgery works because it's forced rest in a lot of people. Now, you might think I'm talking through my hat. Of the patients who've come to us over my entire career, and I, I said I've kept score, so I know exactly what the score is. Of all of those who've been told, the last resort for you now is surgery. Those who did virtual surgery, and we guide them through the process, 95% avoided surgery and were happy that they did. And I can stand by that statistic, Joe. That's amazing. That says a lot about visualization and then a lot about the rehabilitation process after, because I think a lot of people who get better from back surgery, it's because they're forced into a rehabilitation program. They're forced to comply with that rehabilitation program. I can play both sides of that. I'll agree with you. And then there are those who say they've got a posterior lateral disc bulge at L5, and then they re-herniate. They re-herniated because of the negligence of the rehab program to show them what caused it in the first place. And had they shown them that with models and whatever else, uh, and then given them a strategy not to recreate the offense, the chance that they would have re-herniated have been dropped right down. But what happens? Maybe they didn't re-herniate there. Now they come back two years later and they've got exactly the same location of bulge, but the level above. Now it's at L4. And we've, you must have had patients where now they've had three disc surgeries all on the same side, different levels. And then you, they come into your clinic and you say, I know why you're getting these. Has no one ever showed you this? So the rehab failed to remove the cause, which in my view is the very first element of rehab, remove the cause and then rebuild the base foundation and get them moving and playing and doing whatever it is they want to do in life. Excellent. So I've been speaking with Dr. Stuart McGill. You can, of course, learn about all his great books and programs and products. Actually, Dr. McGill, let us know again where we can find you. Backfitpro.com. Joe, I'm not a social media. I don't even know how to sign on. Uh, apparently my daughter does it, but it, just go to the website, <laughs> backfitpro.com. <laughs> so we'll link to that in the show notes. If you'd like to follow Dr. McGill's work, you can of course go to www.backfitpro.com. You can find all his books, products, and programs there, his courses. They're great. He's got great information. Been around lots of, been around a long time providing good information I'm biomechanics with low back pain. At the end of every podcast, I ask you to share this information with your friends and family on social media and stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the Healing Pain Podcast so I can send you the latest episode right to your email inbox each week. I'm Dr. Joe Tata, and we'll see you next week. Joe, can I interrupt and say just one thing you before sure you can. leave us? P.S.? 
P.S. Thank you so much for all you do at the Integrative Pain Science Institute. It's fabulous, the uh, education that you put on and deal with all of the uh, issues that we discussed today. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Miguel. We'll see you soon. listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.